We are back. It's episode 128 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, back from hiatus uh, uh, after a actually remarkably eventful cybersecurity uh, month of August. Uh, uh, and we'll try to catch up uh, and uh, then turn to our interview. Our interview is with our guest, uh, Scott DePasquale, uh, who's the chairman and the CEO of Utilidata, uh, which is a software company that works with electric utilities both to extract, if I understand it, uh, um, additional efficiencies from their system as well as to work on the cybersecurity of the system. Uh, he's on the board of the Internet Security Alliance and uh, was a uh, contributing author to a book that the ISA is putting out on the cybersecurity social contract, which is how I got to know him. Uh, and he's also a non-resident Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council's uh, uh, Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, um, a, and uh, uh, in town in part to uh, 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 to work with them. I think they have an event today, don't they? Uh, yeah. Uh, um, all right. Uh, so um, uh, we'll be interviewing Scott, and he's welcome to jump in on the cybersecurity uh, issues that we'll be discussing um, with our regular Maury Shank, formerly our managing partner in our London office and now advising us on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Uh, he's also a private equity investor, director in te- technology companies, uh, etc. And I, of course, am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA, formerly with DHS, and formerly, 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 and formerly with Steptoe and Johnson holding the record for returning to practice law here more times than any other lawyer. So let's jump right in. Uh, Maury, while... Um while the swift uh, uh, compromises were making headlines, you were actually experience, experiencing bank insecurity, weren't you? Yeah, I think it was an instance of these swift problems. One of my activities is running a small consulting firm, and we get U.S. dollar payments uh, into a U.S. dollar account in the U.K. And on a couple of payments, we started losing about 5%. Um, and it developed that an intermediary bank had somehow inserted itself into the payment process, unbeknownst to the U.S. sending bank and the U.K. receiving bank that had been making these payments. Um, I never got an explanation of exactly what happened, whether it was a swift insecurity, but they did pay back the money. So um, I'm guessing it was something like that. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, well, you know, uh, it is what's scary about the um Swift attacks is how deeply people had gotten into the underlying bank system. So they knew everything that was being done. They knew all of the standard practices for defeating attacks, uh, and they were able to watch them and figure out where the holes were in the system. And then if they could have spelled, they would have gotten a lot more money. Uh, and next time, they'll bring on uh, a former English teacher from high school and uh, will get a uh, billion dollars instead of $100 million. Um So, yeah, I think we're going to see more and more of this because getting people out of your network, uh, making sure they can't sit there and watch you, for months before they uh, strike is remarkably difficult if they're not exfiltrating data. Yeah, I mean, as we've seen with phishing attacks, as they've gotten more and more sophisticated, I think um, the same will happen with these financial system attacks. Yeah. Where, that no, as you've just said, knowing the specific details of the transaction will be really important. In my case, knowing that it was a U.S. A US dollar payment uh, from the U.S. to the U.K., so a transition, intermediate transition into sterling was marginally credible, although it, it resulted in stealing money in the currency conversion. And and with its usual flair for uh, um, uh, seizing on the capillaries of uh, issues, uh, the European Union has decided to uh, uh, continue fighting with the United States over privacy, uh, uh, even though that's not going to advance security at all. Uh, uh, the privacy shield is up, and 
companies are joining because they kind of have to uh, unless they want to go through a much more demanding um, a, and legally difficult set of uh, uh, steps. Uh, I think uh, we're probably up to about 100 uh, um, uh, companies that have joined the uh, Privacy Shield, and some of them are pretty well-known, Microsoft, uh, Salesforce. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, what's your sense about how this is actually working out in practice? Practice uh, and how much we can rely on uh, the, the privacy shield to actually stay up. Well, I, it seems to be working okay. I mean, there's big companies that are registering successfully. There were a few thousand registered under the safe harbor, so it hasn't been a flood for everybody to join right away. But I think it should work um, nearly as well as the safe harbor, Um maybe better from a European perspective because there's additional requirements, additional enforcement is, is expected. So I think companies that join have to be more careful because they have both more requirements and the prospect of more enforcement. Whether it'll stay up, you know, I, I don't know. The safe harbor didn't, and there are lots of people who are talking about challenging the privacy shield, but my bet would be that it'll stay robust through entry into force of the general data protection regulation in um, less than two years. Well, and I am still uh, seeking funding for the uh, uh, Europocracy Prize that would uh, encourage the people who are dying to bring privacy lawsuits to uh, choose a target other than the United States, which actually has pretty good privacy rules, and instead um, uh, pick other uh, big uh, European Union uh, uh, trading partners, including Turkey, which has obviously pretty lousy privacy right now, uh, or China, which has none, uh, or Russia, which is you know, affirmatively anti-privacy. Uh, These are all countries that, in theory, should be meeting this, the exalted standards set by the European Court of Justice uh, when they were talking about the United States, uh, uh, but which have never once uh, uh, been the subject of litigation. Uh, hopefully, we'll get a little, little litigation beyond just uh, going back the same old anti-U.S. well. Speaking of anti-U.S., yeah, well, I, 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 that was editorializing. You don't have to respond to it. Uh, no, I won't. Go ahead. All I right. Hear more about so, the so the other one I wanted to talk about because it's such a big deal and, and kind of blew up uh, uh, in August was uh, um, the shadow brokers who released a whole bunch of tools that are very widely attributed to NSA hacking tools with zero-day uh, um, uh, exploits in in them, uh, uh, things that work on on, on Cisco uh, uh, routers, basically aimed at uh, compromising firewalls. Uh, um, very sophisticated stuff. Cisco scrambled to uh, um, fix the uh, the holes that were disclosed by this. Uh, um, the people who released it uh, uh, claim to have a whole bunch more that they are trying to sell for hundreds of millions of dollars and probably won't get it. Uh, WikiLeaks said, don't worry, don't pay the money. We'll release all of it anyway. Uh, uh, Snowden said, uh, oh, yeah, this is this is Russia sending a signal, and, and he would know, um, a, that uh, uh, the U.S. shouldn't retaliate for all of the Russian hacking of political uh, uh, operations in the United States. Uh, uh, so it was generally a, a, a giant mess. Uh, the usual suspects said, see, this just shows that uh, uh, NSA is hoarding zero days and that's evil. Um, I'm, I think there's a difference between hoarding them and using them. But the, the real problem is uh, I, I think people who follow this pretty closely agree that uh, uh, if Cisco cared enough to fix um, the uh, buffer overflow problems that they have had, uh, uh, there wouldn't be these um, uh, opportunities. And if they don't care enough, then telling them about one or two and having them fix those to uh, oust U.S. intelligence while leaving them available for every other um, agency that wants to exploit them uh, is, um, is probably not uh, in the long-term interest of the United States or cybersecurity generally. So that was, that was the big news. I don't know how much news it made in Europe. Um, much less um, because there was this angle for the Russian hacking of interfering with the U.S. 
political process. And I think the general attitude over here is, what political process in the United States? You know, there's more interest in Donald Trump and and so forth. So, um, yeah, I, I, it was not huge news over here. Yeah. Well, they'll, they'll get excited if they think the Russians are actually trying to make Trump win, uh, which is an open question. But uh, it, um, all right. Well, it, it, there's also a lot of activity, you know, around the, the great uh, crypto world war. Uh, the FBI chief uh, went to the ABA and asked for an adult conversation on encryption. Uh, still waiting, I think, uh, for that. Uh, but. The ABA is probably not where I would go for an adult conversation on this, but a conversation well paid for by uh, private interests, uh, I would expect. Uh, probably more interesting is uh, France and Germany's interior ministers, uh, Cazeneuve and de Mazier, um, uh, and you tell me which one is, is German, um, uh, have announced that they want to fix crypto and make sure that it's available because of the terrorism uh, uh, implications of unbreakable encryption, and they singled out for a change a European country, a company that they thought was um, uh, acting irresponsibly, Telegram. Um, but, you know, WhatsApp is lined up behind that and a variety of other U.S. companies. Uh, they're going to do something about this. They're trying to, going to try to do this, as far as I can tell, in the context of uh, privacy rules that are st- Still not quite done in inside the European process, uh, um, but I don't think anything has actually happened beyond the announcement that that's what they want and an announcement by the EU that they'd welcome a dialogue on the topic. Yeah, I mean, de Maizière is the German, uh, right. by the way. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they, what uh, Kazanov, who gave the speech, called for the European Commission uh, to study it. And so that means a couple of years uh, before anything concrete happens. The commission studies it, then they probably issue some paper that's discussed, then maybe they propose legislation, it gets fought over. So I think we're a long uh, way from seeing anything concrete. You know, on the U.S. side where you mentioned what Jim Comey had to say, I thought a couple of things were interesting there. One was that he said the Apple case was necessary because they really wanted access to that phone, but polarizing. Um, and he, the adult conversation he talked about was things like, well, don't call it a backdoor. We really need access to this data. But I, I'm not sure what he has in mind because, you know, encryption, unless you somehow provide something that's like a backdoor, even if you don't call it that, it, uh, is not easily breakable. Quite, quite true. Uh, on the other hand, as I never um, get tired of pointing out, uh, Apple has its own backdoor into every single iPhone uh, that uh, those of you who are enthralled to Apple uh, carry, uh, uh, and they use it to send you uh, uh, bad U2 albums and updates for security purposes. Uh, um, and as soon as they, when they sign a piece of code. The, the Apple, the iPhone that you have in your pocket just says, oh, yes, sir, I'm just going to install that right away. Uh, and it could uh, easily provide access uh, or do all kinds of other bad things if Apple wanted it to or if uh, somebody compromised Apple's key. So Apple, Apple has a way to do this, uh, and it built the back door because it thought that not having a back door would be worse and that's probably true it, it would be uh it would mean you couldn't do security updates uh, and and you know all those ut2 albums uh, uh maybe you couldn't take away people's um, uh, ability to have wired headphones uh using a, a real headphone jack uh, which is what they're going to do next uh, i uh, so i i i don't think it's fair to say there's um that backdoors are always bad or should never be done because every manufacturer has them. Uh, the question is whether the manufacturers are going to use them for um, social purposes as opposed to commercial purposes. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, it, that is the debate, and it's a, it's a uh, sharply drawn debate, and I guess we'll have to continue the adult conversation. 
Yep. Uh, so, uh, speaking of adult co- uh, conversations, um, uh, uh, George Soros has been uh, uh, outed. Uh, the DNC's been hacked. The De- uh, Democratic Congressional uh, Campaign Committee's been hacked. Uh, they found evidence of uh, database intrusions into voter databases in a couple of states. Uh, the Russians are taking the blame for almost all of that, uh, uh, and there's some pretty good reason to think that they are actually responsible for them, including the fact that for the first time they uh, we've seen uh, uh, the people who are releasing these big databases not just rely on what the data says, but juicing the data so that it um, says things they're more interested in having said, so that uh, the Soros uh, data turned out was released in two different versions, and one of them clearly had been changed to make George Soros and his uh, folks uh, who are funded in Russia look more dangerous to the Russian public. Uh, uh, so the enthusiasm with which uh, Russia has uh, moved from stealing information to information operations is pretty troubling. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, what's even more troubling is that it only seems to bother half of the American public. The the other half said, well, if it's good for Trump, yeah, what the hell? Uh, which I think is clearly the wrong answer, but uh, unfortunately an answer we're going to, we're going to hear uh, from a lot of people. Yeah. I, I think this line drawing of what is proper for government espionage and what is not is a really interesting one in the China context. It's, you know, come up on the uh, commercial espionage versus stealing IP for, uh, uh Sort of government espionage versus stealing IP for commercial companies. Um, and these are interesting lines where they come up. Yeah, that, well, this is the, this is an, a, the administration has screwed this up badly, uh, uh, by implying that if they can't find an international law violation, they should just shrug and let it happen. Uh, that's crazy. Um, our, our response to this should not be, this is a violation of international law. It's, you don't do that to us. I'm sorry, uh, and we will make you pay until you realize that it's a bad idea. Um, but that does not seem to be uh, uh, the administration's approach. The administration's kind of half-retired, as far as I can tell. Um, anyway, um, let's let's do some real law. Uh, care first. God, I, I, what an amazing uh, uh, run they are on. They've, they were sued for a 2014 breach uh, where a lot of personal data was exposed, maybe a million um, uh, names. And they, they've won three lawsuits in a row, getting dismissed on the ground that uh, there's no evidence that the data was actually used for identity theft and therefore – there's no standing for the people who brought the lawsuit. Uh, this is a, a remarkable run, and it's going to change the calculus for the plaintiff's bar, I suspect, in bringing these cases. And I guess I should ask you, Maury, ECJ um, wrote a, a pretty impenetrable opinion about data protection. This is the European Court of Justice saying that uh, there are some limits on how what uh, an Austrian uh, consumer protection agency can do to regulate uh, Amazon when Amazon uh, isn't in the jurisdiction but sells into it. Uh, um, and uh, this is the second case they've decided. It seems kind of to my mind, surprisingly 1990s-ish, uh, that is to say, recognizing that maybe uh, liability for everything that ails Europe shouldn't be imposed on U.S. tech companies. Uh, um, what does it really mean? Well, this is, in my view, a fairly uncontroversial point of data protection law, that the law applies in the place where the company has its establishment. And uh they have just been more robust this year, both at the ECJ, there was a, a German court decision to the same effect, that where a company really doesn't have an establishment in a country, you can't force uh, local law to apply. So basically the ECJ said here, uh, Luxembourg law applies to Amazon rather than Austria law, even though Amazon is making lots of sales in Austria. And that's um, it's pretty uncontroversial, although controversially the ECJ in other cases like the Google right to be forgotten 
has extended that jurisdiction surprisingly. So it, it's comforting uh, big companies that at least in the e-commerce context, um, they're not going for they're not doing the same thing. So if you know what an establishment is and you can avoid it, you might be able to avoid having multiple quasi-consistent uh, regulations in Europe. But you have to be pretty cautious about uh, what is a uh, an establishment because it doesn't take much to have an establishment in a in a jurisdiction. That's right. I mean, suppose you know, in theory, this should get simpler when the general data protection regulation comes into force in 2018 because that in- will more harmonized data protection laws across the EU, although the rules on interaction between the supervisory authorities in the different countries will get a little bit more complex with lead authorities and so forth. So uh, this this will be an area that um, won't be simple anytime in the near future. Yeah, that's my guess. And the simplicity, the lack of simplicity will uh, enable uh, a wide variety of attacks on um, tech companies now that Europe has kind of made up its mind that it's never going to play in that dress, uh, in that uh, field. Um, so FTC, uh, they had a pretty active month as well. Um, LabMD, which you remember is the uh, uh, the only company that actually is going to fight uh, the FTC's uh, cybersecurity uh, uh, jurisprudence to the end, um, won a surprise victory in front of an administrative law judge uh, there uh, who said uh, uh, the FTC had a uh, unseemly relationship with the company that uh, reported the uh, compromise, and there's no evidence that the compromise of medical data, uh, this was the result of a LabMD employee running a, um, uh, a, a, a Napster clone, uh, a, and uh, so the, the data was accessible because it was shared um, uh, under the uh, Napster clones uh, system, um, and this company found it there and uh, uh, reported it to the FTC after doing some things that were interpreted, at least by LabMD, as a... Uh, uh, an attempt to uh, blackmail them into paying uh, for the services that uh, the company was uh, providing. Uh, the ALJ did not like that relationship, and he said, and there's no evidence that anything actually bad happened to anybody whose data was, in theory, accessible over the Internet. Uh, um, big surprise. Uh, we can all forget that. The FTC itself, the commissioners, all heard the case, and they said, uh, you know, we stand with the um, the staff of the FTC. FTC who brought this case, not with the ALJ who uh, criticized it. Uh, and, you know, we don't think you actually have to show that anything bad happened because just having your data on the Internet, uh, even if uh, if nobody steals your identity, is a, a substantial injury. It means you're likely to be injured. You can be likely to be injured even if there's no evidence in, in 10 years of um, uh, real-life experience that there's any actual injury. It was a remarkable tour de force of self-justification by the FTC, um, which uh, now will have to survive judicial review, and LabMD will have a better shot, I think, uh, uh, when they take it to the Court of Appeals. Uh, the FTC had another bad day in the Ninth Circuit where uh, AT&T whooped them, uh, saying, you know, when it says that common carriers aren't subject to the uh, uh, FTC's jurisdiction, it means that common carriers aren't subject to the FTC's jurisdiction, uh, and the FTC's effort to kind of horn in on the FCC's turf uh, was rejected pretty firmly by the uh, um, uh, Ninth Circuit. And then finally, there was a blog post. Uh, um, you know, the FTC has been setting cybersecurity standards for a decade or more, just making it up out of their hip pocket, as far as I can tell. Uh, uh, whereas NIST generated an entire cybersecurity framework about how to think about cybersecurity. Uh, and the FTC, that was uh, more than a year ago, the FTC finally noticed and said, oh, 
Yeah, that uh, that NIST cybersecurity framework thing. It's uh, it's just like what we've been saying, uh, you know. Uh, and it doesn't really set any standards, so you can't comply with it. So just do what we say, um, and what we say is is really you know properly understood. NIST was just uh, ripping off our work, uh, more or less. Uh, uh, worth reading, but at the end of the day, it simply says. If you follow the cybersecurity framework and what we've written, then you won't have any problems with us. I think that's probably it's probably unnecessary to actually follow what NIST has said. Um, all right, quick items that I wanted to get through. Uh, the UK watchdog on terrorism legislation was asked to report on bulk data collection, and uh, the report said... Well, it said in the... New interception powers bill that um, that's being considered. Um, there are four kinds of bulk collection, all of which supposedly exist under existing law, but it wasn't as clear. This is bulk interception, which is like sitting on bearer circuits. Bulk acquisition, which is what the NSA has been controversially doing about large amounts of data. Bulk equipment interference, which is bulk hacking. Yep. of private computers, which apparently the U.K. authorities haven't even been using, and both personal data sets. Another um, thing that's been controversial with the NSA is gathering large amounts of information on large amounts of individuals to cross-reference it. Um, and the the reviewer, a uh, barrister called David Anderson, basically said, well, they all seem useful for law enforcement purposes, and uh, although there's some privacy concerns, I don't see a reason to change what's in the bill. Okay, so, so he was quite supportive of of all of these powers. Oh, and that makes sense. I mean, uh, there's there are obvious reasons to do bulk collection. Uh, if you want to look back in time, bulk collection is the only way to do it. And of course, that means you're collecting information on people you don't currently suspect, because that's the whole point. It's to be able to look back when you do suspect them. Uh, and if you don't have the data, you can't. Uh, and uh, uh, my guess is, although his report's a uh, hundred pages long, you probably could could have said it that quickly. Uh, another form of bulk collection, I, I really like this one, um, uh, probably because it's a tool from the Iraq war, but uh, Baltimore is now using it appropriately enough. Uh, next up, Chicago. Um, it, the uh, Baltimore flies a Cessna over the uh, crime areas, and it just takes a picture every, I don't know, second or two uh, of the street. Uh, it, it, it can't really see people, or at least not uh, identify them, but it can it can spot uh, cars and follow cars, uh, and it just it, it just has a real time uh, bulk collection of what you can see from the uh, from the sky of Baltimore streets. But what that means is that if there's a murder in a park, um, you can see the you can run the the movie forward and back. You can go to the park at the moment, you can say, who drove there in the last 20 minutes and where did they come from? Uh, and then where did they go when they left the, the park? And uh, it becomes easier and easier to figure out uh, who was there who actually committed the crime and where they're hiding out. Uh, and the Baltimore police said, uh, yeah, we've actually cracked a lot of cases doing that. And the ACLU, of course, said, well, that that that's bad. You know, uh, it, uh, it's got to be uh, some kind of privacy violation. And uh, they're trying to turn it into a, uh, a flap. But I, I, don't, I have trouble seeing any legal problem with this unless you really overread the cases that say, um, yes, stuff that happens in public is public, but if you really, really gather information about what happens in public, we might decide to change our mind, which was uh, the Supreme Court's recent decision. So I suppose you could do that here, but uh, my guess is that we'll be able to demonstrate the real value of this for dealing with um, uh, violent crime and conspiracies uh, uh, before the litigation actually gets rolling. Just from a U.K. perspective, we have more CCTV cameras than, than anybody. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. Maybe and China has more now. They've gotten pretty, pretty... A lot of crimes are solved that way, and yes. people are used to it, and they like it because they feel safer because of it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I read uh, thrillers and uh, 
detective uh, stories from uh, uh, the UK, and they it's all all the police procedurals are. Well, let's go find a CCTV camera, uh, and maybe that'll solve the crime for us. Uh, uh, and and the uh, the writers have to work harder and harder. Um, uh, to avoid having their crimes be easy to solve with CCTV, just like uh, um, horror movies are running out of ways to say, oh, my cell phone battery died. Um, uh, all right. Uh, uh, I'm going to skip the uh, Google, Yahoo, uh, Google copyright payment thing because it hasn't quite happened yet. Uh, uh, but uh, I do think we should point out um, that the privacy bar and the uh, um, class action bar took another hit uh, in a lawsuit in front of Lucy Coe uh, claiming that uh, uh, there'd been a violation of California uh, privacy actions, a uh, privacy law, because Yahoo was reading incoming and outgoing mail and, and attaching ads to it before the mail had been opened. Uh, I think was the or sent, um, and the argument there was that's a wiretap, uh, and consequently uh, you're not authorized to do that, and we can get uh, damages. Uh, but it turned out that uh, the damages were um, not something you could um, have a class action on, uh, and so they ended up being tossed out on that ground. They asked for an injunction saying, don't do bad things. Uh, and Yahoo agreed, okay, fine. We'll apply the ads after the email is opened and not before. It'll be mildly inconvenient and nothing more. And we'll we'll toss $4 million to the lawyers, $5,000 to three or four named plaintiffs, and nobody else gets nothing. I, I, one of the dumbest uh, class, class action settlements, uh, uh, at least from the point of view of consumers, in a long time. Uh, and I'm sorry that uh, Lucy Coe approved it. Uh, um, uh, but again, it's the long withdrawing roar of the class action bar as they try to find some way to make money out of uh, uh, breaches and uh, uh, claims of privacy, and they're really struggling. Yeah, uh- that, that's the game the class action bar has been playing a long time in a lot of areas, as you know, settle for attorney's fees. So. Yeah, yeah, but I, you know, they, they can't, they can't feel good about having started out with something where they had hundreds of millions of dollars in potential uh, liability and they end up in, with four million dollars worth of, uh, um, uh, attorney's fees. Uh, but I guess, you know, four million dollars better than, uh, than a quarter. Uh, okay, um, Anything else, uh, Maury, that we should cover? Because we're, we're way over, I recognize. No, it's been a busier than usual August, and I think we've done a pretty good job of covering it. Yeah, and now now that it's uh, past September uh, 1, the European uh, Commission is back in town, uh, and they will be making all kinds of trouble for uh, U.S. tech companies for the next uh, uh, several months. So you'll invite me back soon. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and I should say I am recovering from shoulder surgery, uh, but it's uh, uh, it was just less than a week ago. But I'm I'm feeling pretty good. So uh, if you need a surgical uh, uh, reference for uh, rotator cuff work, uh, uh, send me email. All right, let's move to Scott DePasquale. Scott, thank you for being so patient as we've uh, gone through our month of News Roundup. Uh, um, Scott, you're the CEO of Utilidata, and can you just give me some idea, for give our listeners some idea, what Utilidata used to do and how it relates to cybersecurity for utilities? Sure thing, yeah. So we're a software company based in Providence, Rhode Island. We focus on automation solutions for electric power utilities and specifically for the local distribution side of the grid. So if you think about the grid in two different spaces, right, we have bulk power, mm-hmm. which is centralized generation and high-voltage transmission. So the big wires that that carry uh, electricity long distances, um, that is not the space we're in. We are in the space when it gets to the transformer and the substation and that delivery apparatus between the substation and your home, which is regulated on a state-by-state basis, uh, and that is what we call the local distribution system. This is the part of the grid that will see the largest rise in connected devices over the next five years. So when we talk about the Internet of Things for the industrial sector and power utilities, this is where you're going to see charge. 
charging stations connected, um, dispatchable batteries connected, and a number of other things. What we do is we automate those devices, we network them, we give the utility access and visibility deep into the grid they didn't have, and our algorithms and software uh, can manage them more effectively than they can be managed manually. So you actually have or provide a network of uh, networked things that um, tell the utility or enable a user to uh, extract uh, particular advantages from the grid? Yep, we network devices, uh, we take control of those devices autonomously, and we can drive a lot of energy savings by optimizing how electrons flow in the distribution network. So this is this is close to, if not exactly the same as the smart grid that we've been hearing about. It's part of the smart grid. Well, it's the important backbone because uh, what we had that was novel four or five years ago when we re- relaunched the company was an economic way to show ratepayers and regulators uh, of the utilities how they could connect devices. It needs to be economic. To deploy sensor technology and other communications technology without a case to be made right. for the ratepayer and the consumer is, is not something that the utility is going to engage in. We were able to show them how they can save and in, in, in manage efficiency and create energy efficiency and create dollar savings, um, and, uh, and that will pay for the deployment of sensors and communications, right? Mm -hmm. And then we now have a treasure trove of visibility that we didn't have before. Most people don't realize between the substation and the home, 95% of America, and frankly, the world is blind. Utilities don't know what's happening uh, in their system until you call them and say, my power's out. And this is in the 21st (laughs) century. If you think about this, right? Um, Alexander Graham Bell came back today. He'd have no idea how your iPhone works. However, However, Thomas Edison, if he were, if he came back today, he could run the average utility. Not much has changed in 80 years, and we're just starting to that point where we're seeing this Internet of Things. We're seeing it now economically viable to deploy uh, more advanced information communications technology to so, the grid. So, so let me say, uh, my first reaction is, well, you're part of the problem. You're, you're creating the cybersecurity nightmare that we uh, uh, we face because all these devices are going to be hackable, uh, and bad things will happen when they're hacked. So you ought to be doing something about cybersecurity. What, what, what are you doing about it? <laughs> absolutely. So that's funny uh, and absolutely true. In 2012, uh, we had some very big utility partners, American Electric Power, National Grid, Pacific Gas and Electric. The Saudis had made a big investment in our company. We started working with Saudi Aramco. And as folks started understanding the solution, you know, they were coming to us saying, boy, you really expanded our threat surface. These kinetic <laughs> devices, if you think about the last 10 years of cybersecurity, right, we talk about SB Mm-hmm. We talk about denial of service, so you can lose productivity because of a because somebody denies you access to a tool or information you need. We've talked about financial crime, stealing money from credit cards and banks. Right, that's where we lived. When we start connecting devices that are kinetic and mechanical, we are introducing a new element we haven't had to think about before. And we were really at the tip of the spear of this five years ago. So our customers came to us and they said, "Well, um, you're going to have to do these compliance." things to get us comfortable, and we became, uh, we had to become cybersecurity experts. They started treating us like the government treats the defense industrial base as a small company. We said, gosh, we're, we're going to have to both figure out how to uh, create security internally because of the type of product and the control side of the business that we offer, but also how to turn that liability into an asset. And so what we realized we had that was unique is surveillance tools. When we network these devices, we can see... You can see what they're doing. What they're doing. And that was the the novel sort of approach to cybersecurity we took from a cyber physical systems or operational technology side. We can do things the IT folks can't do. We can see what's happening to a device in the field when it happens. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that is, to, to be fair to the cybersecurity guys... Inserting sensors into your network are part of what they do right? and what they think is important. And what's been discouraging about uh, uh, the um, uh, industrial control systems is there really isn't a good way to see what's happening and no good forensics. Uh, you could have an at- a successful attack on the grid or on a pipeline, uh, cause major damage, and you wouldn't be able to go back and recapitulate what happened. That's correct.
Yeah, that's been the challenge, and that's been part of how we've positioned our offering with our partners. We have been able to uh, give them information very quickly on the genesis of an attack. So if you think about a Ukraine-style attack, mm-hmm. as soon as a heartbeat is created between the human-machine interface at a control center and a device out in the field that's controlling voltage or current or a breaker switch, as soon as that device gets a heartbeat, we can see it and we can detect anomalies in the those assets. So if you think about the existing assets in the field for a utility, we're just turning those into the sort of sensor networks the IT folks are used to looking at on the conventional business network side. How do you keep them from lying to you? The devices? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's a longer discussion on technology. We developed some approaches to counter spoofing, uh, which I guess I would characterize as you can't fool Mother Nature. We rely on discrete observations in the field that are hard to fool. We just have to create parallel pathways on how we communicate back with the humans in the shop. So it, if, if it says, yeah, it's really cold here, you know how cold it is. Uh, and, and so you're able to do some uh, external checks on uh, on That's what, what you're hearing from them. So you brought up the black energy uh, case. This was an, a, an attack on Ukraine's grid. Uh, again, we're blaming the Russians, uh, and probably uh, rightly. Um, w- the one <clears throat> soundbite I've taken away from the black energy uh, story is that uh, they turned out to be pretty resilient because they still had guys in trucks who could drive out to the uh, uh, substations and turn stuff on and physically uh, flip switches and uh, uh, open uh, uh, gates. Um, doesn't sound to me as though what you're doing lends itself to that kind of uh, physical override. Yeah, yes and no. I think, um, let me draw an analog for you. In 2003, there was a massive blackout in the Northeast Corridor, Mm -hmm. started in the Midwest. It was because uh, there was a bug in an industrial uh, piece of control equipment that First Energy was using, and they didn't see faults Mm -hmm. in their system. And the operators weren't getting information on faults. And what ended up happening is those faults cascaded into rolling blackouts, and it, and it went all the way up into Canada, right? And that's because at the right part of the grid, at the right time, faults were allowed to cascade. Right. And this is what we don't want to see because it could take weeks, if not months. Equipment can be damaged if those faults aren't reckoned with. What you have in the Ukraine is an, uh, um, sort of uh, intention making the operators in the human machine interface blind and cutting their control off, and they chose an attack vector which was to turn a switch off mm-hmm. and then burn the communications bridge between the he- human machine interface and the field. Right. This is very simple. What, what it doesn't uncover is that had they been more clever and they just didn't turn the switch but they wanted to create those conditions precedent for cascading rollouts, you could pick a place to do that where you could cause widespread damage. And I promise you if I take control of a capacitor bank and voltage management equipment, we could break equipment. We could create faults in systems that those systems can't recover from. What Ukraine demonstrated was simply that through a very basic fishing exercise Exercise and, and a little bit of improvement in black energy uh, that they could harvest information and get access to controls. Just because they did not exercise that more methodically or create the 2003 scenario doesn't mean they couldn't be done. This is a shot across the bow for us to understand we can be compromised, we can be fooled, but this connect, that doesn't mean because they didn't do it, they couldn't have done uh, it. So what you're saying is that the, the way they solved the problem, first, this was a demonstration, let's say, by the Russians, in which they were saying, we can take over your grid control system. Uh, we can make changes to the operations of substations that you can see and you can't stop. Uh, and then we can destroy your ability to go back and undo it. Uh, um, but what they didn't do is say, we're going to break the equipment by introducing faults or allowing faults to, to, uh, to build up to the point where the, uh, um, the, the transformers blow or whatever. Right. Uh, they could have done that. They just didn't. And maybe that was 
uh, sort of like uh, showing that you can get into the Illinois uh, uh, voter database but not changing any records yet. Uh, it, it, it's a way of saying, you know, things could be worse, so don't screw with us. Uh, and, but if you're trying to build a defense against it, saying the next time they, they do that, we'll go out and flip all the switches is a fool's paradise because you won't be flipping switches that the, the transformers no, will have bought. That's right. You, you would pick potentially a different part of the grid where you could ca- create conditions precedent for a set of cascading events mm-hmm. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to control uh, and, and damaging equipment that you wouldn't be able to immediately recover from. Now, that would took a, take a sophisticated set of thinking. There's probably a half a dozen to nine places in the United States that sort of are in a unique uh, connective tissue between different interconnects on the grid, where 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 it would be would be a good place to conduct that type of operation. And there certainly, with the advent of all this new technology, uh, the digital exposure is widening pretty quickly to have that happen. So I think you get it exactly right. All Ukraine, the Ukraine event shows us is that uh, a system can be compromised and fooled, and they can get access to systems. Uh, we shouldn't stop our thinking there. This is a problem we have with utilities in cybersecurity. Um, it's nation-state activity, and, and it tends to be driven by the interests of nation-states that don't want war today, may use it if we're in a more uh, formal conflict in the future, and <clears throat> because they're not exercising it like criminals are exercising financial crimes, uh, the, we don't hear and see a lot about it, but that doesn't mean they're not in our systems and they can't red-team us pretty well. Yeah, that's uh, uh, one of the things that's troubling here is that the the financial industry gets hit every day because they're trying to steal money and the, the attackers are trying to steal money and and so there's uh, a whole set of defenses that are paid for by the cost of that fraud to, um, a, and that makes the banks harder targets than they otherwise would be um, they're always playing in the big leagues I, it, it seems to me that if you're a, an electric power company, uh, you're going to go straight from Pop Warner to the NFL. Yes, uh, it's you're, you're not going to you're going to be sitting there saying nobody's stealing anything because there's no way to steal power by hacking my grid. To, and then some nation state's going to come along and say, okay, well, we're just going to take you out. Yeah, and let me paint uh, an even darker picture. We know nation states will be constrained by their political interests, right? And so I don't believe Russia, Iran. China want war with us, right? They're interconnected economic partners. Um, it doesn't mean that if we don't get into conflict, if we get into a conflict with them that escalates, they won't use those assets. They certainly are building that capability. <clears throat> what we worry about is when the U.S. or China or Russia or Iran finances and creates sophisticated tools, unlike the weapons of mass destruction that we've been used to thinking about over the last decade, these tools and skills and capabilities can be very easily transferred. And so that means when China or Russia have developed the capability, uh, they may use contractors, and I promise you they do use contractors. Not all those contractors may sit on their borders. And once a contractor has a tool or capability, it can be so easily pushed out. So if you're a, an ISIL leader or some other non-state or post-national actor and you're mad at the United States, the more these tools proliferate, the more access you're going to get, and those folks will pull the trigger. They yeah. will use that. And that capability, while it, it may be very sophisticated and it may come from a nation state, we should worry about how it traverses its way through the the global commons. Well, and that takes us back to the, the story of the uh, um, NSA tools that were apparently compromised. Uh, so even, even if the Russians or the Chinese don't actually intend to hand off these tools, they could find yeah. themselves handing them off. Yeah. And, and, and Stuart, let me give one more example. You, you say it hasn't happened. It actually has happened a lot. Before Stuxnet in 2008, at the height of conflict between Georgia and Russia, you had a situation where one of the largest oil pipelines in the world that originated in the capital of Azerbaijan, Baku, and took a million dollar, a million barrels of oil a day into the uh, southeastern Mediterranean town of of um, Cheyenne in uh, Turkey, right? That that oil route um, had to go through Georgia in the capital of Georgia, right? Um, and that 
at that moment in that conflict, the Russians, uh, we believe the, uh, a Russian-sponsored group, overpressured that pipeline and literally blew the pipeline segment up that went through Georgia, that went through the bleach. This is, this is the one where they figured out that this was uh, a hacking incident because even though the Russians had taken out the entire uh, monitoring system for the pipeline, there were some infrared cameras that were on a different system, and the infrared cameras show guys walking along the pipeline with laptops typing in code. Yes. That, uh, that's, that's correct. And so we showed without ever touching a pipeline, we could blow up a segment of it. We could stop oil flow, right? And we could create – now, we could do that in a lot of places, right? And so you now see in a geopolitical context when conflict escalates – how commerce and other things can be really affected. So this started before Stuxnet. We know in Germany a couple of years ago that uh, there was a runaway furnace in a large mill uh, that, that burned yeah. down because we couldn't stop that cascading effect uh, that, that happened. Also, a similar compromise. You're starting to see more data points of these kinetic uh, control system-related attacks. Okay. All right. Well, the best advertisement yet for Solar City. If you want to, you want to have a grid that that, that operates after an attack. Uh, uh, my last question for you uh, is: Why are you in Rhode Island? Why is Utilidata in Rhode Island? We were well, uh, a bunch of reasons. We we uh, govern then Treasurer Raimondo, now Governor Raimondo, uh, spent a lot of time trying to convince us uh, that uh, we should move the company there. Uh, private equity firm. Uh, made the acquisition in 2012. The state was an investor in that private equity firm, and so she had uh, made a good case that uh, lower dollars per square foot, uh-huh. uh, we would get a lot of support from the cabinet and the delegation in building the b- business. Uh, we could pull talent in from Boston. Yep. So save a lot of money, have a lot of engagement from your leadership, and uh, at the end of the day, still have access to a great talent pool. And by the way, within three months, uh, they wrote us a half a million dollar check. It was almost a grant. It was a very low-cost, no-cost loan with no covenants uh, that supplemented the, the, the venture capital that the firm had raised. And so she put on a good show. The economics worked. The talent was there. And uh, we've done really well in Rhode Island over the last five years. Terrific. That's great. Well, I, uh, as a, uh, a former Brown grad, uh, it's nice to see that uh, uh, Providence is no longer derided as the armpit of New England, which is what it was called when I went to Brown. <laughs> uh, um, uh, so, thanks to Scott DePasquale. Uh, that's the Cranston DePasquales, right? That is a Cranston DePasquale. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I'll tell Cranston jokes after we finish the program. <laughs> uh, and thanks to Maury Shank, uh, our regular contributor. As always, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. Send us your questions and suggestions uh, uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, uh, or uh, leave a review on iTunes uh, or other podcast aggregators. Uh, this has been Episode 128 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. This fall, we're going to be joined by Ellen Nakashima of the Washington Post, by Matt Cutts and Lisa Wiswell of the U.S. Digital Services team, uh, and at least uh, with Matt, formerly uh, the uh, SEO uh, chief at Google, uh, now at the Pentagon, and uh, Assistant Attorney General John Carlin. Uh, we hope you'll join us uh, for those and other uh, events as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.